are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. A reading from John 21, 1-19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Well, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I hope we can meet one another afterwards. It's good to be with you, though, today. I'm looking forward to diving into God's word. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me? God, as we just sang, you are God and you are good. And God, sometimes we have a hard time believing either one of those things. And so God, I pray that as we open up your word now, that you would help us to see that you are who you say you are and that you are good and that you are faithful. You're so faithful. You're so full of grace. Help us now to see, see that in and through your word, see that in and through Christ as we look on him. And God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would draw us closer to you today. We pray all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Hey, listen, I have some really important news for you today. And then that is, listen very carefully, you aren't perfect. I hope, hope you got that. You are not perfect. None of us are, right? Now, I know that's common knowledge, at least I hope that it is. None of us get everything right all of the time. None of us do everything right all of the time. We have limitations in life. We struggle with sin. But while that's the case, no one likes to be remembered for their failures. Take Bill Buckner, for instance. Bill Buckner had a fantastic career as a major league baseball player spanning 20 years. That's kind of unheard of in baseball for somebody to play for that long. He played for several teams, but most notably the Boston Red Sox. Any Red Sox fans here? One or two, all right. You might know who Bill Buckner is then. Well, in sport, a sport that prides itself on stats and records, Buckner had and has some um, impressive ones along the way, but that isn't what he's most remembered for. In 1986, the Red Sox were in the World Series and Buckner made an error in extra innings in game six of the World Series. The Red Sox would go on to lose the game and the World Series. Now, he wasn't the sole cause of the meltdown of the Red Sox in that series, but fans felt otherwise. It became what he was remembered for. See, the Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918. And frustration and disappointment continued to build and the media stirred up all these feelings about Buckner and it was all placed on his shoulders. This man received death threats from fans, heckling for years and years to come. It wasn't until the Red Sox finally won the World Series in 2004, almost 20 years later, that fans started to welcome him back. This one moment of this one error in his illustrious career became what he was known for. I'm sure we could think of other people that are known for their worst moment. But again, no one likes to be remembered for their failures. Well, as we come to our text today, we see some of the disciples encounter the risen Jesus again. But within this encounter, Jesus comes to one, one who had faltered, one who had failed in a very serious way. But Jesus comes with intention of redeeming and restoring him in such a way that his failures wouldn't define his whole life. And so my hope for you today, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, no matter how much you've messed up along the way, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've sinned or how much you've failed or will fail along the way, is that you too will encounter the real and risen Jesus who has come to redeem and has come to restore you as well, not just today, but for the rest of your life. And so with that, let's jump into John 21, and may we see Jesus more clearly today. Our text today and next week is really an epilogue of sorts to the Gospel of John. John kind of concluded his whole point in writing the Gospel of John in our text last week. Look back in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, here's his whole point, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's whole purpose in writing this. He's been spending all this time trying to help us to see Christ. He's trying to show us Jesus. And then in showing us Jesus, that we would be able to have life in him. As we come to our text today, we get another opportunity to look on Christ, to gaze on the real and risen Jesus. So that's what we're going to spend our time doing in this kind of closing section of the gospel of John. And what we see first is Jesus' gentle 
presence in verses 1 through 14. His gentle presence with his disciples and his gentle presence with us. Now, we don't know exactly how much time has passed since the first Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to his disciples, but enough time has passed for the location to have changed. The disciples had been in Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. That's where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried and where he was raised. But now the disciples are back in their hometown in Galilee. Verse 1 of this section is really a header statement telling us about what's going to happen. Jesus is going to reveal himself to some of his disciples, at least a few of them. Now, reveal is an interesting word. It's a unique word. I mean, our culture today, we have like gender reveal parties, right? We pop a balloon or eat a slice of cake or a cupcake. Is it a boy? It's a girl. We want to reveal that to everybody. Or there's the Apple product reveal, right? Like what's the new iPhone going to be like? What new thing are they going to come out with? But reveal here, when it says Jesus is revealing himself, this is about revelation. He's explaining God to us. That's been the whole point of Jesus coming is he's explaining God to us. That's what he's been doing all along. In John chapter 1, the very beginning of this gospel account, John tells us Jesus is the very word of God. John chapter 1, verse 14, we learn, and the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A few verses later, John 1, 18, John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God, meaning Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Jesus is the full and final word of God. Jesus himself is revelation. We get to see who God is, is in and through him. So if you want to know God, if you want to see God, you know him and see him in and through his son, in and through Jesus. Now, the disciples, you can imagine, their minds and their hearts are still kind of all over the place. Christ has encountered them. They've seen the risen Christ. He's commissioned them to go and take the message of his life, death, and resurrection to the ends of the earth. But right now, he isn't currently with them. So they are, in many ways, waiting. They're waiting to see what's going to happen next. And as they're waiting, they seem to be doing what's commonplace for them. They decide to go fishing. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. We have nothing else to do. This might seem odd at first, right? I mean, after all, they've seen the risen Christ, and we might think, man, if I had seen Jesus in the flesh right before me, I would do a whole lot of different things. He told me to go tell people about him, and they're deciding to go fishing. What's up with that? Well, we don't want to read too much in this, though. We have to remember a couple of things here. They're waiting to see what happens next. They've seen Christ, but he hasn't yet ascended to the Father. And they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come, but Acts 1 hasn't happen, happened yet. It'll come soon. So Peter suggests, let's go fish. Not in a way to ignore the command of Christ, but because this was part of the practical pieces and parts of his life. The other disciples agree. They decide to go with him. But we saw in verse 3, that night they caught nothing. It was common for fishermen to go out at night to catch fish into the early dawn. But this fishing expedition at this point in time was fruitless. But another extraordinary surprise is right around the corner. Look at verses 4 and 5. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? 
They answered him, no. Jesus is standing on the shore, but they don't recognize him. It's very similar to Mary's encounter with the risen Christ at the tomb. And so we don't know exactly why they don't recognize Jesus. Maybe because it's early dawn hours, the daylight isn't great yet. Maybe it's because they're a hundred yards offshore and it's distant to see anything from that distance. Maybe it's because Jesus's head is covered. Maybe it's because Jesus's body is glorified. Maybe it's all of the above. We don't know exactly why they don't recognize him, but they don't. But instead of Jesus yelling out to them who he is, he asked them a question, kind of a leading question. In the original language, it would sound something like this, guys, you didn't catch any fish, did you? To which they say, no, no, we didn't. To which he replies, verse six, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now this is one of those, well, you might try kind of moments. Have you ever had a friend or maybe you've been this person before, you're, trying something on the golf course. You say, you're not hitting it very well. Well, hey, you might try this, try and adjust this way. Or you're trying to do something in your yard and your neighbor offers you some advice. Well, you might try this. Or a coworker is giving you some advice on tweaking some aspect of your project. Well, you might try this. And this is where they're at. I mean, what do they have to lose? They've been trying all night and nothing's worked. So let's try one more thing. Let's try and throw our net on the other side of the boat one more time. What happens? So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And it's in that moment, at that time, that light bulbs go off in John's head. All of a sudden, he goes, wait a minute. This has happened before. I've seen this exact thing. I've been in this exact moment before. Now, he doesn't record it in his gospel, but if we go back to Luke chapter 5, listen to this. It'll be on the screen as well. It says, and when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, this is totally different. This is three years before this instance. He says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Do you know who their partners were? James and John. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. John all of a sudden is going, wait a minute, this isn't just some passerby on the beach. This isn't just somebody walking along, giving us some advice, some helpful advice for a fish. This is Jesus. And so he says to Simon, he says to Peter, it's the Lord. He's here. He's right there. And John is elated. He's excited. And Peter is too. So much so that Peter throws himself into the sea to swim to Jesus. He throws himself into the water to swim to Jesus. It reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump. Have you guys seen this? Where Forrest hasn't seen Lieutenant Dan in a minute. And he's on the shrimp boat and he sees Lieutenant Dan on the dock. And what does he do? He just straight jumps off the boat while the boat keeps going to swim to the dock because he wants to go see his friend. That's the kind of excitement Peter has. He's not thinking about anything other than I have to get to Jesus. So he swims to shore, a hundred yards away. The rest of the disciples bring the boat and the fish to shore. I mean, I love his eagerness. I love his zealousness in this moment, especially because what's happened already with Peter and Jesus, and especially in light of what's about to happen. So when they arrive, they find though a pretty docile scene. There's a fire going, has some fish, some bread cooking on it. And Jesus just simply invites them to bring some of their fish in to cook as well. It says in there that Peter goes and hauls all the fish in. (laughs) Like guys got some adrenaline at the moment, right? 
153 fish, they say, he hauls in by himself. He's bringing these in. He's amped up. We see the disciples' heads are still spinning, though, in this moment. They're still wondering, is it really him? Is it really you, Jesus? They're still in awe of the fact that Christ is standing before them, that he's been raised from the dead. Their minds are still captivated and blown away by this truth. And I wonder, is it something that still captivates you? That Christ is risen, that he's no longer in a grave. There's no place for us to go travel to, to see his tombstone and visit the place of his burial. He's alive. He's ruling and reigning. Does that still blow you away? Man, I want it to. For you, I want it to. For me as well, I want us to be in awe of the real and risen Jesus for the entirety of our lives. So much so that we would throw ourselves into the sea to swim to Jesus. In all of this, Jesus does something that I find so remarkable. Look at verse 12 for a minute. It says, Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. He just invites them to come eat with him. Here is the resurrected Lord, the King of kings, the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And he doesn't come with flash. He doesn't come with pizzazz. He took some bread and some fish and he gave it to them. The real and risen Jesus continues to serve his followers in such a simple way after a long night of fruitless fishing. I love the normalness of this. No shock, no awe, just humble, caring, physical, gentle presence. Jesus offers the same thing towards you, gentle presence. This is our God. This is our King, the one who came to us as one of us to rescue and redeem us. And he has more redeeming and restoring work to do, which leads to our next section, gracious redeemer. We see in verses 15 through 19. As they finished eating together, Jesus turns his attention to Peter and he asks Peter a series of three questions, almost identical questions. He begins though with saying, Simon, son of John. Now this is Peter's formal name. It's his formal name. It's a way to elevate the seriousness of the question and we understand using formal names for formal matters, serious matters. We just saw this recently. The chief justice got up. He said, please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. We, that's an elevate. This is a big deal. Or if you're a parent or have been around parents, moms and dads sometimes correct their children by saying the child's first and middle name or first and last name. The child knows in that moment, mom's serious. I better listen. See, Jesus is helping Peter understand that what he's about to say, what he's about to ask is not a passing comment. It's not a passing question. It's important. It's serious. And it's only for Peter. He's talking to him specifically. So what does he ask? He asks Peter a heart question. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Do you love me more than you love your friends? Do you love me more than you love these nets and these fish and these boats? Do you love me? Why is Jesus asking this? Well, think about who Peter is and think about what Peter has done. Peter was prone to boasting about his faithfulness. Remember Peter on the night that he was Jesus was betrayed, he said, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. 
It was Peter who in the garden, when the mobs came to arrest him, took out a sword to slice off the, high ser- the servant of the high priest's ear. Peter was amped up. He's ready to go. He's going to do anything. He's going to lay down his life for Jesus. But then, but then it was Peter who faltered and failed. It was Peter who denied Jesus three times, saying, I want nothing to do with him. I don't know this man. I have nothing to do with him. I reread this this week in the Gospel of Luke, and man, it just breaks my heart. You can see his angst in this moment. And in Luke, it says that when he had done this, Jesus looked at him from across the courtyard. Can you imagine that look of the Savior you've just denied in front of you? all these other people, looks at you in the eyes, and it says he went out and wept bitterly. It wrecked him. He said he was going to do all of these things. He boasted in front of his friends, and when the time came, he didn't do any of it. You know what? Jesus doesn't have a cold shoulder for Peter. He doesn't come and eat with the disciples and decide to sit at the other end of the group and not really engage Peter. He doesn't avoid him when he's eating and hanging out. He's coming for Peter and he's coming to graciously redeem and graciously restore him. Peter responds to Jesus's first question. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. To which Jesus replies, feed my lambs. Jesus then in verse 16 and 17 asks essentially the same question a second and a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? The second time Peter responds the same way. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But the third time it says, verse 17, Peter is grieved. He's sad. Like, why does he keep asking me this? Does he not believe me? Does he not think that I'm being genuine or being true to this? So he says in verse 17, the second half of verse 17, Lord, you know everything You know that I love you. This is a declaration of Peter, who he knows Jesus to be. He he says, Jesus, you're all-knowing. You are God. If you know everything, you certainly know my heart. You know that I love you. Have you ever had the experience like this with a friend or a coworker or boss or something, someone asking you the same thing over and over and over again? It can be frustrating. But Jesus isn't seeking to frustrate Peter. He's after Peter's heart. See, when he asks these questions, it's likely that everyone knows what Peter has done. Peter certainly knows. So his response is heartfelt and genuine. You know I do, Jesus. You know that I really love you. Peter denied Jesus three times, and so Jesus asks him his question three times, and he does so publicly because Peter boasted publicly of his faithfulness. If Peter is going to continue on in following Jesus, if Peter's going to continue on in being a a leader among the disciples, then he needs restoration from his Savior. So what is it that Jesus restores him to? What does he commission him to? Not to a position of prominence or power, but of action and service, humble service. The variation in Jesus' responses is all-encompassing of care for Jesus' sheep, for the church, for the bride of Christ. Jesus' sheep, his people, they need to be fed. They need to be cared for. They need to be taught about his words and his works. They need, we need still today, our minds renewed, our minds transformed, not by culture, but by our risen king and his kingdom. He's commissioning Peter to go do that. Jesus brings Peter back into leadership, but he does so with grace, not a rebuke. In case Peter doubted, doubted that that commission that we looked at last week maybe wasn't for him, 
Maybe Jesus was just directing that in the group, but didn't want to embarrass Peter by calling him out. Maybe he doesn't really apply. Maybe he isn't really a sent one. Maybe there's an asterisk next to his name. Maybe he'll only be remembered for his failures. Jesus wants to make it clear. He doesn't dismiss Peter. He commissions him. He wants him to be a pastor. He wants him to be a shepherd of his people. In this short interaction, Peter is fully forgiven. In this short interaction, Peter is fully restored to do just that. And it's absolutely amazing. Our gracious redeemer comes for him. Now this whole sermon series has been about seeing Jesus, seeing him rightly so that we might follow him fully. And I'm thankful for what we see in Jesus in this short interaction because it isn't just for Peter's sake. It's for you too. See, what we see in this text is that, Je that Jesus doesn't give up on people. He doesn't give up on people because Jesus is a gracious redeemer, one who restores what sin has destroyed in us, one who restores what sin has destroyed in the world around us. But I wonder if sometimes, if sometimes you have a hard time believing that. I wonder if sometimes you may understand grace to a point, but you can be tempted to think it has its limitations. That maybe that you could get to a point that Jesus will grow tired of you. That he'll set you aside, that he'll give up on you. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever had that thought cross your mind? Like you've messed up too much. You've messed up too many times. You've failed and faltered too often. And now at best, at best, God will put up with you. But he certainly isn't going to use you. Peter might have felt that way, but Jesus shows us through this conversation that no one is too far gone. No one is too far gone to be redeemed. No one is too far gone to be restored. No one is too far gone to be used by Jesus. That's what God has always done. If you can read through the Bible, if you've never read it before, take time to read in the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over and over again. God picks the least person that we would think to pick, the one who's failed or fails along the way, the one that's not impressive. He picks the ordinary. He picks the ones that are imperfect to use them to make much of himself in the world. But maybe you're still thinking, but wait a minute, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. Maybe you have sinned greatly or failed greatly recently or in the past. But as one of my favorite artists, Propaganda says, there's no rewind, just redeem. There's no rewind, just redeem. See, Jesus doesn't take Peter's self-righteous boasting. He doesn't take his outright denial and rewind it and change it so it doesn't happen. He doesn't go back in the past with Peter and say, let's erase that. Now, this is a part of Peter's story now. It's a part of his life. What Jesus does is he moves forward with Peter in it, giving him grace. See, it's in this moment that we have to recognize either grace is grace or it isn't. But in Christ, who came full of grace and truth, grace is exhaustive. It's total. It's in and through him that it's unending. There's an unending supply of grace. It really is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. There's no period on the end of that. It just keeps going. As much as you need, God supplies in and through Christ. It can never run out. Men, do you need that kind of grace in your life? Do you need that kind of savior in your life? One who isn't gonna dismiss you, one who isn't gonna cast you off, one who isn't gonna say, you know what, that's the end of the road. And I know I do. 
Sin is serious. It's deadly. It's damning. Because of it, we all deserve to spend all eternity in hell, separated from God, but God's grace is overcoming, and it's magnificently transforming. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to this. He says to the Corinthians and to us, or do you not know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying sin is serious. Sin is serious. None of those things will allow you to enter into the kingdom of God. But then he says this, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That's who you used to be, that used to define your life, but when Jesus invaded your life, when he went to the cross and said, it is finished, it changed everything for you. Your identity has changed now, you're in Christ now, not in your sin anymore. That's who you are, you've been redeemed, you've been restored, so listen, that means because of what Christ has done, your story of sin is not one of shame. The enemy comes to you and tries to shame you. Did you fail again? Did you screw up in that same way again? You really think God's gonna use you? Those are lies from a forked tongue. No, your story of sin has become a story of redeeming grace. See, with Peter, there's no rewind, there's just redeem. But it wasn't just for his sake, it was for the sake of others. He was redeemed to redeem. Peter, of course, isn't the redeemer, but he points to the one who is. And he does, throw, th does so through his life. He does so through his words. We see the fruit of that in the New Testament. And that same gracious redeemer who restored Peter wants to do a redeeming and restoring work in you too. Listen, you can't go back and change your past. You can't change what you did yesterday, what you thought yesterday, what you said yesterday. You can't go back five years or 10 years or 20 years. You can't change anything about your past and neither can I. But in Jesus, listen to me, listen to me. Your past does not define you. Your, your failures and your faults, your sin and your shortcomings are not your identity. You aren't your sin. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That means that nothing in the past that you've done, nothing can stop you from being used by God now. He can redeem any of it. He can redeem all of it for his glory and your good through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And he can use it for the good of others. See, just like Peter, there's no rewind in your life, just redeem redeemed to redeem. That means that God can use whatever has happened in your life, even your sin, as a story of grace and redemption to lead others out of darkness into his light. That there might be someone that you encounter who has struggled in a particular way that was the same way that you used to struggle. But if you hide that story of grace in your life, they're going to miss out on that. Instead, you can come alongside of that person and say, friend, I've been in the same place you've been in. I've struggled with anger. I've struggled with sexual immorality. I've struggled with addiction, but I saw God's grace work in my life in such a magnificent way. I know it's possible for you too. Come into the light. Come into the light. 
Listen, your qualification to proclaim, your qualification to testify to God's grace is your story of restoration. That you can say, I've been raised to new life in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now, like Peter, you are redeemed by the Redeemer to bring redemption to those in need of it, both the believer and the non-believer, by the word of the gospel, to tell them what Hebrews 7 says, that Jesus saves to the uttermost, to tell them what Romans 8 says, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, to tell them what 2 Corinthians 5 says, that if you're in Christ, that the old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation in him. To tell them that in John 5, that if you look on Christ and place your faith in him, you can cross from death to life. To tell them what Colossians 1 says, that God has rescued you. He's transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's sending you to go do that. And to use your story of redeeming grace, of restoring grace to help them with that. It's amazing grace that God would use jacked up people like you and me to do such amazing things. No rewind, just redeem. At the end of this section, Jesus tells Peter that he'll be faithful to the end. In verse 18, he's pointing to the fact that Peter will indeed one day lay down his life for the name and the fame of Jesus. He's telling Peter he won't deny him again. But it won't be because Peter is strong in and of himself, not because he's capable on his own. It'll be because God is at work in Peter's heart and in Peter's life. And the same thing is true for you. Your ability to be faithful, your calling to be faithful isn't because you have enough willpower or strength on your own. It'll come about because you continue to look on him who lived and died and rose again for you, your gracious redeemer. This section concludes with Jesus saying two key words to Peter, two words that he's heard from the mouth of his savior before. Follow me, follow me. Follow me is not just to take a walk which they will do, but follow me always. Follow me in all ways. Follow me with all of who you are. Follow me for all of life. It's an invitation to a full life of grace, an invitation to a life with and for Christ. Jesus doesn't relegate Peter to the outskirts or keep him at an arm's length. He brings him close. This is the same call he brings to you today with grace upon grace upon grace for you to turn away from your sin, whether that's for the very first time for you to place your faith in Christ today, or maybe for the thousandth time in your life to turn away from sin, to set aside your shame and to follow him now, follow him forever and call others to do the same. Sojourn, there's no rewind, just redeem. So now move forward in faith and faithfulness as you rest in God's redeeming and restoring grace. Amen. Every week we take communion together as a church, and this is our first response to the preaching of God's word, our first action item as we are reminded and refreshed once again in the grace of the gospel. We eat the bread, a, a picture of Jesus' body broken and given for us. We drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. It's a meal that reminds us what it took, what it took to bring about our redemption, what it took to bring about our restoration and to be refreshed in it again. It is in Jesus and through Jesus alone that you receive grace upon grace. So as you eat and drink today, may your soul be refreshed. May your heart rejoice that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and now send you to share the good news with others. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here today. 
but we just ask you not to take communion. This is a testimony, a testifying to the fact that our only hope is in Jesus. But if you aren't yet a follower of Jesus, we want you to take Christ. We want you to experience his grace. So call out to him as you sit in your seat. Ask him to save you. Ask him to redeem and restore you. And let somebody around you know so that we can help you on your journey with Jesus. For those of you that will take communion, if you didn't grab the elements on the way in, they're on a table right out in the lobby. Go pick those up. Take time in your seat to repent. Take time in your seat to rejoice. And then let's stand and sing together. Let's pray. Holy God, gracious Redeemer, we praise you for who you are. God, that you would be justified to allow us to remain in our sin, to be condemned for an eternity, to bear the weight and punishment for it. But God, you sent your son to redeem and restore. God, we thank you that that's a continuing work in our lives. And so God, we pray that you would do a redeeming work, that you would do a restoring work even in us now and in the days ahead. God, may we rest in your grace, not live in our failures. Help us to find our identity in Christ, not in our sin. Use our stories to bring redemption. Use our stories to bring restoration in the lives of other people that we encounter along the way. And God, all along in the midst of all of this, we pray that you'd be glorified in us and you'd be glorified through us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.